Well, you know, as it turns out, whether we wish it were true or not, apparently some people really do live by the maximum, maxim every man for himself. Swedish researchers recently studied 18 shipwrecks from 1852 until 2011 that involved 15,000 passengers from 30 different nations. And they discovered that the survival rate for women was on average about half that of men, and children had the lowest survival rate of all. So much for women and children first. The researchers found that far from surrendering their lives so that others might live, most men respond to maritime disasters like the proverbial rat. They abandon the sinking ship as quickly as possible. Crew members who are supposed to put the passengers first were the most likely to escape with their lives. And only in nine cases, 50% of the time, did the captain really go down with the ship. Every man for himself. We like to think that we are different and that we would act differently. But would we? Our human nature definitely tends toward every man for himself, every woman for herself. But there's a better way. You could call it a superhuman nature, a new nature. And our human spirit empowered by the Holy Spirit that gives us a deep concern and compassion for other people. John Calvin writes this, the world reckons those men to be happy who give themselves no concern about the distresses of others, but consult their own ease. Christ says that those are happy who are not only prepared to endure their own afflictions, but to take a share in the afflictions of others, who, in, who assist the wretched, who willingly take part with those who are in distress, who clothe themselves, as it were, with the same affections, that they may be more readily disposed to render them assistance. Instead of abandoning others in the time of need, you and I must enter into that need. That means that you and I must be people of mercy. You and I, as believers in Christ, must be people of great mercy. hope we're convinced of that as we come to the word of the Lord this morning. The Gospel of Matthew, if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn there. Matthew chapter 5. And when you've found your place, I'm going to ask you to stand so that we can hear read together the word of the living God. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, this is the word of the living God. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Let's pray. 
in heaven, thank you for your word. As always, thank you for teaching us through your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who indwells us, your people. We pray now, Spirit of God, that you would give us uh, insight, deep understanding of the truth of your word. And we pray that by your power, you would help us to apply the truth of your word to our lives and change the world by it for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. After a few weeks break, we return this morning to the Sermon on the Mount and in particular the Beatitudes and the tremendous challenge they bring to our lives. And the Beatitudes are challenging because they are so very personal. They have so much more to do with our being than with our doing. And I don't know about you, but I certainly find it easier to do in my life than to be. I can engage my hands in acts of service. I can do good things without ever engaging my heart or my mind. But that's not the case with being, with who we are. The Lord, he just won't leave us alone. Have you noticed that? He seeks to change us, to make us better, to transform us, to make us new. The Lord wants us to flourish in this life. Do you believe that? The Lord is for us. He wants us to flourish in this life. We won't flourish if he just leaves us alone and unchallenged to just continue being who we are in our human nature. And so these Beatitudes, as I'm sure you've noticed, they expose us. They reveal the areas in our lives that need to be transformed. They show us the broken things in our lives that need to be fixed in order for us to flourish. And so we have to look at these Beatitudes as the blessings they are, even when they challenge us, and even when they make us a little uncomfortable. And such is the Beatitude before us this morning. The fifth one, when we understand it correctly, and when we apply it, it's challenging, and it makes us uncomfortable. So let's look at it. The fifth Beatitude. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I could spend weeks on this one beatitude, and you know I can. <laughs> you know I can. I'm not going to. Uh, you know, the time we have is the time we have, and there are things that I won't cover, and you're going to say, but you didn't talk about... No, we have what we have. And here's what I want to do this morning. I, I want us to begin by defining the two key words that you see in this beatitude. And those words are merciful and mercy. And when we begin to understand these words, we'll see that we can't live in an every man for himself world. Let's start with merciful. It's an adjective. Adjectives describe nouns. Nouns are people or places or things. And so merciful is describing people. And in this instance, it's, it's describing who you are or who you should be when you see someone else in need. If you are a merciful person, when you see that need, you become sympathetic. You become compassionate. That's how we define merciful. And to sympathize with someone isn't just to feel sorry for them. Oh, bless their heart. It's more than that. 
The Greek word for sympathy is made up of two words. Sin, which means together with, and patheo, which means to suffer the same thing as. To suffer together with. To endure hardship together with someone. You can hear the word pathos or feeling in that word. And so if you're a merciful person, if you are a sympathetic person, that means that you attempt to see what the person in need sees. You attempt to think how the person in great need might think. You attempt to, to feel what the person in great need might be feeling. In other words, if you're merciful and sympathetic and compassionate, you don't remain on the outside of their life looking in. Instead, you enter into it with that person. This word is only used one other time in the entire New Testament. It's Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. It says, Therefore, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. So merciful describes what Jesus is like. And Jesus didn't stay on the outside looking in. Is that good news? He entered into our world. He entered into our experience. He understands the challenges and the limitations of being human. Hold on to the word propitiation. We're going to come back to that later. But merciful then is an adjective that should describe you and me when we are, as believers in Christ, willing to enter into the experience of others in need. It relates to how we feel in the face of the need and suffering of other human beings. The second word, mercy, on the other hand, relates to what we do when we see the need. Mercy means to be greatly concerned about someone in need. Again, to have compassion and mercy and pity. Now, this word also sounds like a noun, doesn't it? It sounds like something we're going to receive. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. It sounds like, oh, we're going to get some sort of gift from the Lord. But it's not a noun. In the Greek, it's a verb. And in this instance, it's in the, the passive tense, which means that you and I are going to be acted upon. Something will be done for us by someone else in our behalf. This word is used many, many times in the New Testament. And the people who use this word are looking for something to be done on their behalf. In fact, they are desperate to be acted upon. And when people use this word, it's usually they, they, they cry it out or they, or they fall on their knees before someone. Have mercy on me, cried blind Bartimaeus, who was reduced to begging just to survive. Have mercy on me, he cried when Jesus passed by. Have mercy on me, cried the mother, whose daughter was cruelly oppressed by a demon. She knelt before Jesus, Lord, help me. Have mercy on me, cried the father who knelt before Jesus. 
His son suffered from seizures and fits and often fell into the fire and the water. Have mercy on us, cried the ten lepers who lived in complete isolation from family and friends when they saw Jesus pass by at a distance. And so we see that these cries for mercy come from people who are desperate, from people who cannot help themselves. The mother, the father had tried everything to help their son and daughter, but to no avail. Blind Bartimaeus could not restore his own sight. The lepers could not cure themselves of their leprosy. If they're going to find help, if they're going to find relief, it will have to come from outside themselves. And so they cry out to Jesus, Lord, have mercy. Act on our behalf. And because Jesus is merciful, he does so. In his mercy, he gives Bartimaeus sight. In his mercy, he heals both the son and the daughter of that mother and father. In his mercy, he heals all ten lepers. So because Jesus is who he is, merciful, he does what he tells us to do, what we are blessed when we do it. He acts in mercy. This Jesus says to you and to me, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. If you really want to flourish in your life, who wants to flourish? You want to flourish? Do you in your life right now? Then you've got to enter into the, the suffering of others with compassion and act on their behalf to alleviate it. Jesus says there's a blessing in that for us. It's not every man for himself, not in the kingdom of God. In God's kingdom, it is each for the other. Each for the other. Say that with me. So put it up here. Each for the other. That's the kingdom of God. And let's not limit this to physical suffering or tragedy, like sickness and blindness. So that's certainly included here. We've got to expand the, the, the area of this to include entering into not just the physical pain and suffering and need of people, but, but also into the messes and the painful dilemmas in which people find themselves as a result of making sinful choices. As a result of giving into sinful impulses, sin has consequences. And so if you and I are merciful, we have to be willing to enter into those messy situations in which people around us, our friends and our family members, find themselves because of sin. We don't abandon them. We don't say every man for himself. We don't say, you got yourself into the, this mess, get yourself out. No. Blessed are the merciful, those who enter in. Now, having said that, the, the crux of the entire matter here is really what mercy and being merciful, what does that look like as we try to live it out in 2018? This is the challenging part. This is the uncomfortable part. What is compassion? What is sympathy? Is being merciful simply affirming the person and their sinful situation? Is it finding a way to make them not feel bad about their behavior 
and its consequences? Is that really mercy? In the time in which we live, it's vital that we understand rightly what mercy and compassion and sympathy truly are. Mercy cannot be mercy if it's disconnected from truth. I want to say that again. Mercy cannot be mercy if it's disconnected from truth. Mercy cannot be rightly applied by me or by you apart from truth. You are not being merciful. You are not being merciful to anyone if your words and actions on their behalf do not lead them to the truth of God. You're not being merciful in your words or your actions if you do not lead the person in need to the truth of God. Mercy and truth go together. And I'm going to prove that to you. May I? You ready? Buckle up. Proverbs 3, let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Mercy and truth. Psalm 85, mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Psalm 25, all the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth. Proverbs 16, in mercy and truth, atonement is provided for iniquity. Psalm 89, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. Psalm 57. God shall send forth his mercy and truth. Psalm 57.10. For your mercy reaches to the heaven and your truth unto the clouds. You got it? Mercy and truth go together. Mercy is God's response to what is true. And God knows the truth, all truth. God is truth. And this is the truth that God knows. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the truth. All have sinned. All miss the mark that God has for humanity. All fall short of the glory of God. That glory that Adam and Eve knew in the garden before sin. The glory of the presence of God with them. The glory of direct communication they had with God. After they sinned, they were deprived of that ever-present glory. Deprived of that direct communication with God. And I don't think that you and I dwell on the devastation of that loss enough. And that's not good. Because this lost glory is what we need to regain. This lost glory is what Jesus wants, is what God wants us to regain. What God in his mercy allows us to regain. God knows the truth. We're all sinful people. And he responds to that truth with mercy because truth and mercy go together. And so we must see that mercy is part of the character of God. So you and I have no right to play fast and loose with it. You and I don't get to define mercy the way we think it should be. Now I'm going to demonstrate this by going back to Exodus. Y'all still with me? We got a ways to go. It's much more relaxed. If you have your Bible, go ahead and be turning to Exodus 25. In this part of 
the history of Israel, God's people are brand new to being a nation. They're brand new to being God's people. They are freshly out of slavery in Egypt. They have not yet rebelled against God. God has not yet sentenced them to 40 years of wandering in the desert. In chapter 25, God is uh, telling the people how he's going to relate to them and how they are to relate to him and how it is they are supposed to worship. And so in this chapter, he describes the tabernacle. And he describes the very important pieces of furniture that it's going to contain. And the most important piece of furniture is the Ark of the Covenant. And in the Ark of the Covenant are going to be placed the tablets of stone that God himself wrote with his own finger, his commandments. And on top of the Ark was a lid, a covering made of pure gold. And on that lid at each end at the head and the foot, there was an angel, cherubim. And this covering was called the mercy seat. So if you're in Exodus 25, look beginning in verse 17. God says, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. On one piece, of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. Now, here's the really important part, verse 22. There, the mercy seat, I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. (laughs) Did you catch that? This is God himself saying, I will speak with you there. See, this is God restoring that last, that lost glory. Because God is a God of mercy. Because he has compassion on the state of his people. He chooses to speak with them. Because God is a God of mercy. He chooses not to leave his people alone. In the dark. Scared. Uncertain unknowing. Because he is a God of mercy, he chooses to be with his people and speak to his people. God has compassion on their condition because he's a God of mercy. He knows how hopeless and helpless his people would be without him. And so the mercy seat, the mercy seat becomes the most closely connected with the presence of God. For the people of Israel. The mercy seat didn't represent God, neither did the cherubim. Instead, it was the space in between, the space above that couldn't be defined or contained, represented the unseen God. And scripture says that from that place, from the mercy seat, God executed justice. So think about it. Because this place, the mercy seat, 
is the place that God executes justice. You cannot think about God's justice without also thinking about God's mercy. Is that not good news for us? The justice of God together with the mercy of God. That's why Hebrews 4.16 says to us, let us, us, then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Mercy. That's the heart of God towards sinful people. But he never ceases to be a God of truth. A God who acts in accordance with that truth. That sin must be dealt with because he is a holy God. And because he cannot dwell in the presence of sin. And because he's a holy God, that ark and the mercy seat were kept behind the veil. That veil that split when Jesus died on the cross. A place called the Holy of Holies. A place that only the high priest could enter only one time a year on the Day of Atonement. The high priest would go in and he would sprinkle the blood of the Lamb. Guess where? On the mercy seat. The mercy seat sprinkled with the blood to atone for the sins of the people for that year. Now let's come back to the New Testament. This is my favorite part. Go to John chapter 20. This is so great. It's page 906 in your pew Bible. John chapter 20, verse 8. This is so good. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Are you connecting the dots? This is not some random detail recorded here for no purpose. It's not difficult to make the connection between what Mary sees that God wanted her to see and to tell us about and Exodus 25. The mercy seat with angels on either end sprinkled with the blood of the Lamb made atonement for sinful people. And it was always pointing toward Jesus. Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God who blood was shed to make atonement for the sins of his people. The slab on which they laid his body is now empty except for two angels, one at the head and one at the foot. Did I tell you this was good? Could it be any clearer that God is merciful towards sinful people? This new mercy seat declares sin is forgiven. It declares that death has been defeated. Now, I promise to get back to propitiation. You ready for propitiation? Back to Romans 3.23. This is good too. It's all good. God is amazing. All these connections. Anyway, Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, 
and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, you got to follow this. And I know everybody checks out from time to time, especially in 2018. Everybody back? Come back with me. Come back and follow this. The Greek word for propitiation is the same Greek word that's used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the New Testament, to translate the word mercy seat. Isn't that crazy? Same Greek word. Same Greek word for propitiation means mercy seat. Propitiation is literally the place of conciliation or expiation. And so we could translate Romans 3, 23 through 25 like this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a mercy seat, mercy seat, by his blood to be redeemed by faith. By the mercy of God, by his compassion for us, by his looking on in our miserable condition, by his merciful desire to act to alleviate the misery of that condition, he acted on our behalf. He made a way for our sins to be forgiven and for us to be able to enter into his presence right now and forever through the person of Jesus Christ. Mercy, right? Mercy, mercy of God. That's his heart toward you and me. Never forget it. God has a heart of mercy toward us. It's absolutely vital to see the mercy of God in Christ Jesus if we will ever understand this beatitude. You thought I forgot about the beatitude, didn't you? Jesus is calling us to be merciful, to reflect the heart of God, to extend mercy to others as we have been shown mercy. Mercy that is only mercy in light of the justice and truth of God. We have messed things up badly. We have lived unjust lives. We have lived outside the truth of God. But God has mercy for us, and so we have mercy for others. The best way for you and for me to be merciful is to see the mercy of the Lord toward us. To know what we've received. Then we will be merciful to others. Because you know what we will say? There, but by the grace of God. There, but by the mercy of God, go I. As far as the end of this beatitude goes, they shall receive mercy. Let me tell you what Jesus is not saying. He's not saying that his acting merciful toward you is a result of you being merciful towards someone else. As if you could earn the mercy of God. You can't. What Jesus means here is simply, if you aren't merciful, if you are not a merciful person, you don't understand the gospel. You don't know or understand Jesus as God's mercy seat for you. And if you don't know that, you won't receive God's mercy. If you do know that, that Jesus is your mercy seat. 
and by faith embrace it, then you will know the mercy of God. The mercy of God right now. And the mercy of God when each of us appears before him to give an account of our lives. Do you know that day is coming for you? And you won't have the rest of us there with you to hold your hand. Each of us will appear before our own, before the judgment seat of God. And in spite of all the things we have done, in spite of all the things we have thought, things that we would never want anyone else to know about, in spite of those things, because of the mercy of God toward us in Jesus, our mercy seat, accessed by faith, on that day, there will be mercy for you and for me. Is that good news? That is good news. God will act on our behalf to forgive all. He will act by extending this invitation. Come and enter the joy of your Father. Here's the question. Do you know God to be merciful? Have you experienced the mercy of God? If you are here this morning and you have not, let me tell you, you can cry out to the Lord. You can cry out like the leper. You can cry out like blind Bartimaeus. You can cry out to the mother and father and Jesus will respond to your cry because he is merciful. If you haven't experienced the mercy of God, you must cry out to him. There is nothing, nothing like experience, experiencing the mercy of God in Christ. He's already acted on your behalf by dying on the cross for you. So in faith, receive the mercy of God. I'm going to pray. If there's anyone here who hasn't experienced that, that you will experience it today. If you have receive the mercy of God, then you must act mercifully. You know what? We can take on our culture with God's mercy. And being merciful doesn't mean turning a blind eye. It does not mean live and let live every man for himself. The truth of Scripture says, it's Proverbs 16, there is a way that seems right to a man but its end is the way of death. There's lots of ways outside of God's truth that seem right to your friends. There are lots of ways outside of God's truth that seem right to your family members and your neighbors. They can't see that that way is not right if they don't have the Spirit of the Lord. And they'll never hear that those ways are not right from our culture. And you know I'm speaking what is true. We affirm everything and everyone. It's okay. Not according to God's word. No one who is merciful watches someone else they care about head off to destruction. That's every man for himself. That's not the maxim by which we live our lives. We are people of mercy. And so we live each for the other. But we must act in mercy 
joined to God's truth. James 5, 19, and we're almost done. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, it's the merciful person, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sin. Don't you want to be that person of rescue? Mercy's not saying everyone for himself. Live and let live. Mercy's each for the other. Mercy, mercy's graciously pointing others to God's truth. Mercy is entering into the life and situation of that person. Mercy is seeking to understand why they are there. Mercy is seeking to feel what they are feeling. Mercy is crying with them in their pain and turmoil. And then mercy is covering all of that with the gospel of Jesus Christ, which cries out, mercy for the sinner. We must not leave every man for himself and every woman for herself. You and I, because we have received mercy, must give mercy and act mercifully. Your life will flourish if you do. Jesus said so. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we cannot thank you enough for being the Lord of mercy. We cannot thank you enough for the forgiveness that you give to us in spite of what we deserve. Father, we know our hearts. We know our thoughts. We know our actions. We might try to deceive ourselves into thinking we're good people, but in those moments of quietness and honesty before you, we know deep down that we are not. We need to be transformed. We need to be made new. And because of your mercy, you do those very things for us. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy. Thank you, Jesus, that you're our mercy seat. Thank you that we can approach your throne as we do even now. And as we come before you, what do we receive? We receive mercy and we receive grace. So thank you for that. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be at work in this place, in this room right now, if there are those who have never called out to you for mercy, by faith, believing that you gladly will give it, that you will welcome them, that you will receive them, that you will never turn them away. Lord, have mercy. You will receive. And so I pray that that person would cry out even now in this moment. Help us to go from this place now, Lord, full of mercy, full of merciful acts. If we move out into Charleston, throughout our city, acting compassionately on behalf of people, entering into their suffering, entering into their pain, being one with them, Lord, knowing them, earning a right to speak into their lives the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that you will bless us as we seek to be a blessing and act mercifully toward others. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.